That's an excellent prayer. We should pray when we sing. And um, when God gives the vision, when He is our vision, things are clear. Those are good days, right? <laughs> when, when God is, is our vision. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. And we are going to hang out around verses 17 through 22. And we'll probably be hanging out there for two or three weeks there in in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 down into chapter chapter 4. Chapter 3, verse 18 down into chapter 4. I'm going to read, uh, actually, I'm going to read from verse 17. Have you gotten your car sick yet? <laughs> okay. We're going to read verse 17 down through chapter 4, verse 1. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism, Not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh... Arm yourselves also with the same purpose, with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So there, uh, let's just sing a few more songs. <laughs> this uh, noticeably is, is, a, is a challenging passage. And in this paragraph, Peter reminds us of Christ's suffering. There in verse 17 and 18, and of Christ's victory in verse 20, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject to him. So we have this flow from Christ's suffering, suffering for us, to him conquering and being victorious. Okay, that's the major thought through this paragraph. And this paragraph is given to fortify the minds of us, to fortify the minds of us to suffer for righteousness' sake. Peter really hasn't left that subject. And you see in chapter 4, verse 1, it comes back up, right? Therefore, since Christ also suffered for us. So he has never left that subject of suffering for righteousness' sake. Christ is the preeminent example of that, 
Christ went through that, and Christ now has all power and authority. He's never left that major, major theme. And keeping that in mind will help us interpret what's going on in the the parenthetical insert in the middle there. So these passages, verses 18b, and we're going to be a bit technical this morning, beginning there in the middle of verse 18, going down to 21, these are admittedly difficult. And that parenthetical digression there from 18b, notice that, you're going to have to follow along in your Bibles or you'll you'll get lost. Uh, It's the best I can do. But in the middle of verse 18 of chapter 3, you see with the statement, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom? That's where the digression begins, okay? He suffered for us to bring us to God. Here comes the digression. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom he went and preached to the spirits in prison, okay? So that's the parenthetical kind of insert there. And... uh, There are a few passages which are more difficult to understand than these verses in our New Testament. Now, I find it a little humorous. I don't know if you will, but, you know, it was Peter who said of Paul in 2 Peter. Some of you know what I'm going to refer to Nathaniel does because he's, he's laughing. It was Peter that said of Paul, quote, as also our beloved Brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Well, Peter, we can say this of your letter also, in which are some things that are hard to understand. So... And I think Peter's passage is harder to understand than any of Paul's. (laughs) Okay? Uh, Well, Peter's passage has been subjected to the very abuse to which Peter referred to in 2 Peter, referencing Paul's writings. That is, that people were twisting Paul's writings to their own destruction And that, of course, is what happens with some of these very difficult passages in the New Testament. They're obscure, they're difficult to understand, and people build entire edifices of doctrine on the most obscure of passages. And they try to answer questions that there are other texts of Scripture that are very plain, but rather using the plain texts to understand the obscure text There's a tendency in cults to take the obscure text and reinterpret the plain text. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on that, but that that happens. And regarding Peter's passage, the two most prevalent twistings are that there is a post-mortem opportunity to be saved. In other words... After you die, you're going to get another chance. Okay? This passage is 
pressed into service for that, that idea that you have a second chance. And it's interesting. Last year, two times within the space of a month, there were people that asked me and confronted me about that. Okay? Now, even worse than that, this passage has been twisted to support full-blown universalism. Everybody ultimately is going to be saved. Christ went down to that prison and he saved them all. Okay? Everybody's going to be saved. This text comes into play for those that are defending universalism. Everybody's going to be saved. Well, regardless of the difficulty of a passage, we are to give ourselves to the patient study of all Scripture Even if we do not arrive at one interpretation that appears to be superior to all others, there is still much profit in considering the subjects that Peter has put into these verses. And our next few messages will be a bit on the intellectual side, and we just got to patiently work through this. And I know it's hard to think and reason, but it's good to go to the mental gym sometimes. The mental gym is a good place to go visit, okay? So we're going to be in the mental gym a little bit in the next few weeks as we grapple with this. Now, if a passage contains one or two terms or phrases, which fixing a clear meaning is difficult, we can usually work our way to eliminate many possible conclusions since they don't fit with the context or they are incompatible with other clear conclusions or the lexical data doesn't support certain interpretations. You know, we have some tools that when there's two or three unknowns, we can apply those tools and often eliminate it down. But this passage has seven or eight of those Seven or eight difficult phrases or terms of which it is not really clear on a number of them how we ought to understand those. So, and when you define some of these, that definition influences how you define others. It's like a fork in the road. You get to this fork, and if you answer this question one way, you go off this way, and that leads you to a certain set of answers on that fork. But if you go the other way off of that fork, that's going to lead to different answers of those same things. And there's two or three forks in the road in this passage. Depending on how you answer one question, you're going to go one way with the interpretive passage, or you're going to go another way. And there's at least two, maybe three forks like that in this paragraph. So, I will give you what I think to be the most likely understanding without interacting in detail with the other views. I'll mention other views, uh, but not interact with them in detail. If you really want to study deeper, I would just say go consult some good exegetical commentaries on the passage, and they explore all the different forks and things. Uh, There are good exegetical commentaries on this passage, but I'm not going to spend that much time 
to, to go through all the possibilities. Well, we'll first focus our under, on the understanding as much as we can, and then in a week or two we'll derive some applications. There are applications off of this passage, but we'll do our grappling with the understanding first. And then we'll build a list of tentative conclusions. We're going to make conclusions along the way and kind of build uh, how we answer some of these questions. So, so verse 18, the last half of that verse, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, capital S, or made alive in the Spirit, lowercase s. All right, this is our first one. (laughs) Most of you who are reading the ESV or the NASB or uh, the NIV have, uh, but made alive in the Spirit, little s. If you're reading a New King James or a King James Version and some others, you don't have that. You have made alive by the Spirit, capital S. Okay? So this is our first fork in the road. Now, nearly everyone agrees that in this statement, Peter is referring to Jesus' death and resurrection. Okay? That's what this statement is referring to his death and resurrection. And in this passage, Peter will complete the triad and refer to Jesus' ascension in verse 21b. You notice verse 21b, uh, the second part, 22 who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God and so forth. So he is going to complete that triad that we have so often in Scripture. We go from death to resurrection to ascension. And he's doing death and resurrection here in verse 18b, and he's going to reach the ascension in verse 22. Now, the translation that uses a capital S, of course, the interpreters, the translators, are doing some interpretation for us, and all translations have to do a certain level of interpretation. You can't translate without doing some interpretation. Well, the New King James translators made that capital S, which means they're interpreting that to be the Holy Spirit. In other words, being put to death in the flesh and made alive by the Holy Spirit. That's how they took that. Now, of course, in the Greek text, there are no capitals. (laughs) There are no capitals there. So this is an interpretive question. Is the Holy Spirit being referred to there or some other use of the term spirit? Well... Peter is referring to the resurrection, but I don't think he is referring to the Holy Spirit being the cause of the resurrection. He's referring to a transformation of Christ himself that took place as a result of the resurrection. 
as a result of the resurrection. Being put to death in the flesh. Being put to death in the flesh. But made alive in the spirit little less. So if we don't go with by the Holy Spirit, then we must discuss what it means that he was made alive in the Spirit. That is, he was made alive in his own spirit or in the spiritual realm. He was made alive in the Spirit, in his own spirit or in the spiritual realm. The contrast which Peter intends is not contrasting two parts of the nature of Christ. That is, his material body and his non-material spirit. That's not the contrast, I think, that Peter has in mind between these two phrases. Rather, he's contrasting two states of existence. Being put to death in the flesh does not emphasize a physical body, but the condition of existing in unregenerate humanity. And in regard to Jesus, we are taught that he came in the what? Likeness of sinful flesh. Paul said that. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, and he dwelt and he lived under the limitations and the restrictions and the difficulties of sinful flesh. It was was a state of his existence in his humiliation. Not being sinful himself, of course, but being in a great state of lowliness, being earthly, we might say, but not in the sinful sense of that term that we use it. His being made alive in the Spirit cannot be referring to a resurrection of His Spirit. For His and our spirits are immortal. Our spirits are not resurrected. Our spirits are immortal. They are not resurrected. It's the body, the bodily, physical resurrection So we're not talking about a resurrection of his spirit. So that's one of the reasons uh, we think it has to do with his state. And when Christ died, his spirit did not die. Correct? Correct. We understand that? Death is the separation of the body from the spirit. That's what death is. It's not the death of the spirit. It's a separation of one's spirit from one's physical body. That's what physical death is. So I'm suggesting that for Christ to have been made alive in the spirit is that he became powerful to a degree in which he was not previously in his state of humiliation. And we're going we're to go with that. Being made alive in the spirit is parallel with what Jesus says of himself in Matthew 28. And what Paul says in Ephesians 1 that Ray read, All power in heaven and on earth has been given to me 
That's post-resurrection state. I'm saying being made alive in the Spirit is synonymous with those declarations of Christ's great power after his resurrection and ascension. And as Paul said in Ephesians 1, the exceeding greatness of his power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. So, being made alive in the Spirit, we're going to follow that fork, has to do with Christ's extreme power that he now has resulting after his resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15.43 expresses maybe a similar idea to what Peter has expressed here. The body is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. Now, I believe that this is the correct view because Peter's emphasis in this passage is the superior power of Christ after his resurrection. The passage has to do with the now exalted power of the previously suffering Christ. The now exalted power of the previously suffering Christ. 1 Peter 3.22 confirms this. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And the preaching in the prison has something to do with verse 22. And we'll we'll get to that, we'll get to that later as a demonstration of that power. So, I would suggest at this point, I'm suggesting three conclusions so far regarding the phrase, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. One, Peter is referring to Christ's death and his resurrection. Two, in the statement, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, Peter's point is not to contrast two aspects of Christ's nature, i.e. body and spirit, or material and non-material. That's not the contrast in that phrase. And third, this statement is contrasting two states of Christ's existence. His pre-resurrected state of humiliation with his post-resurrected state of power and glory. Those are my first three tentative conclusions. Now let's dip into verse 19. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, by whom or in which, okay, your translations diverge here, okay. Uh, New King James says, uh, by whom. 
he went and preached. ESV and New American Standard don't put by whom there. They put, having been made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and he went and preached by to the spirits in prison. Long story short, a translation of by whom is not necessary here. It introduces another person into this discussion, that is the Holy Spirit, into this context. But if verse 18b, in the lowercase spirit, is to be preferred, referring to Christ's exalted resurrected state, then in verse 19a, we have, as the ESV renders this, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. The point is, the humiliated Christ is now resurrected, made alive in the spirit. He is in this state of power and glory in which he went in this state of power and glory, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And I, I favor that line of thinking. He is in this state of power and glory, and in that exalted state, he goes and makes this proclamation. Now, this understanding rules out the idea that a disembodied, unresurrected Christ went to this prison during the time period between his death and resurrection. The track that I'm on discounts that. Christ's victory over death is not demonstrated. Now, this is important. Christ's victory over death is not demonstrated until he is bodily resurrected. And I will be strong on that. <laughs> okay? So, it's not a disembodied spirit that goes to this prison and declares this great victory. No, the evidence of the victory is the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the evidence of the power and the victory. So this interpretation discounts this idea that an unresurrected Jesus during those three days descends wherever, you know, without a resurrected body. So Christ's victory over death is not demonstrated until he is bodily resurrected. There is no demonstration that Jesus conquered death prior to his bodily resurrection. You agree with that? I think you should. There's no demonstration that Jesus conquered death prior to his bodily resurrection. Now, I suggest that Peter's message is that a post-resurrection Christ, in his post-resurrection power, 
went to this prison and made proclamation and has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. And yes, that's what the proclamation is going to be uh, that he made. And we're a long ways from getting there. So, now there are two more questions regarding verse 19. Who are the spirits in prison? And what did Christ proclaim to them? Well, we will consider the first of those questions here this morning. So back to verse 19. In which he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison. Now, paraphrasing one commentator, expressing the difficulty of this verse, he said this, quote, So the resurrected Christ went somewhere and preached something to some kind of spirits in some prison. <laughs> End quote. Okay. Those are four separate questions. <laughs> And I, I don't know who that commentator is. I had that in my notes and I didn't include the reference. But that's right. Those are four separate questions. I got it boiled down to three. And we'll maybe just look at the first one or two. There are three matters referred to in verse 19 which, need, which we need to determine the meaning of. One, who and what are the spirits? Two, what and where is this prison? And three, what did Christ proclaim to these spirits in this prison? Now, just as determining whether to go with capital S or lowercase s above was a fork in the road of how we understand this passage, this is the big fork in the road. So here, how we answer the first of those three questions will significantly affect how we answer the other two. The first question was, who and what are these spirits? So, who are these spirits? Are they disembodied human spirits? One of you says no. <laughs> I won't, I won't ask us to raise our hands at various interpretations here. Maybe that's not, not, not proper preaching etiquette. So, are they disembodied human spirits? Are they angelic spirits? Here's another one. Are they good or evil spirits? Okay. Some of both? Are they demonic? What about these spirits? Well, this is probably only one place I'm going to say this. <laughs> the case is pretty strong that the reference, especially when it is used in the plural, spirits, plural, refers to non-human, non-material spiritual beings who are often, though not always, evil. Daryl Charles lists 27 New Testament references of such usage of spirits. 
And here are just a few examples. Matthew 8:16. When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word. Matthew 10:1. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out. Luke 10:17 Nevertheless do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. We could go on and on till 27 references like that. Spirits especially plural are evil. Okay? Almost every usage is that way. The only plural reference I can find referring to disembodied humans is in Hebrews chapter 12, but in this case a qualifier is added to make the meaning clear. But you have come to Mount Zion to the spirits of just men made perfect. That's like the only exception, but there's a qualifier there to make sure we understand that correctly. Now, although some have concluded that the spirits referred to are disembodied human beings, the common usage of spirits, especially when plural and unqualified, does not support this conclusion. Furthermore, the authors of Scripture refer to deceased humans, then their non-material part, as souls, not spirits. And let me just read you a couple of references. Revelation 6, 9, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. Revelation 24, Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded uh, for their witness to Jesus. So when we're referring perhaps to the non-material part of a human being, Scripture uses that term soul, the souls. So we're we're going with non-human spirits, likely evil. Okay? Now, what and where is this prison? Some have interpreted that this prison is what the Bible calls paradise, where the Old Testaments went prior to Christ's death and resurrection. This view is weak because the linguistic data, as we've seen, is strong that the spirits in this prison are not human. Okay, if we got that right, that discounts this interpretation, right? If the spirits are non-human, likely evil spirits, then this place is not paradise with human spirits. In this prison, they're not human. Others have used the text to justify the Roman Catholic teaching of purgatory though their main justification for that doesn't come from this passage. Once again, this is ruled out since the spirits in this prison are not human. 
Still others have advocated the idea that human spirits are eternal and that our physical birth is actually the embodiment of one of these spirits on earth. Again, this is ruled out since the spirits in this prison are not human. So all three of those things are ruled out if the spirits in this prison are not human. Okay, but what about this prison? Is this a good place or a bad place to be? Well, the Greek term here is phuleki. I may not be pronouncing that right. Phuleki, that term, it is used 47 times in the New Testament. In all but three of the four of the references, it denotes what we commonly call a prison, a place where those who break the law are restrained and punished. Okay? So we've got, I don't know what, four off of 47, 43. We got 43 uses of Fuleke, and it's a prison as we would understand it, a place for those who have broken the law and are being punished. Matthew 5.25 would be just one example. Agree with your adversary quickly, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, and the judge hand you over to the officers, and you be thrown into prison. That's typical usage. Now, interestingly, the other three to four references refer to a watch or a guard of the night or or a keep or keeping guard it's interesting shepherds now there were shepherds living out in the fields keeping watch that's our term feluke feluki keeping watch over their flock by night and in acts chapter 9 it is said of those wanting to kill paul and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. So these three or four references out of the 47 have to do with a guard or keeping watch. Okay, and that, of course, fits with prison. So the lexical data on the meaning of that term is very strong, okay, that this prison is a prison. (laughs) It's not paradise. It's a prison where lawbreakers are kept. So this prison is not a good place to be, and non-human spirits end up here not because they were good, but evil. So, both understanding the spirits as evil, and there's strong lexical data for that, the 27 references, and understanding the place as a prison That is consistent, right? You put evil lawbreakers into what? A prison. So that lexical data works very well on this passage. That the spirits are non-human and they're evil. And the prison is a place for lawbreaking evil spirits. So that's, that's pretty consistent, I think. And 1 Peter 3.20 confirms this 
understanding of the prison and its inmates. You see, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Now listen, who were formerly disobedient. So that fits. They're in this prison because they were formerly disobedient. And no, they're not human spirits being universally saved. No, no, they're not. So, 1 Peter 3.20 confirms that. All that's left to do is a bit of a summary for today. So we have five conclusions thus far. One, Peter is referring to Christ's death and resurrection in verse 318b, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. He is referring to Christ's death and resurrection. Two, in this statement, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, Peter's point is not to contrast two aspects of Christ's nature, i.e. physical and spiritual. No. Three, this statement is contrasting two states of Christ's existence. His pre-resurrected state of humiliation and his post-resurrected state of power and glory. For the spirits in this prison are non-human, Five, the spirits in this prison are evil. God exercising judgment has imprisoned them since the days of Noah. Okay. Those are the first five tentative <laughs> conclusions that, that I can give you. And Lord willing, if we have another Lord's Day, uh, we'll... No, actually, no, yeah, that's right. Lord's Supper is two weeks from now. So if we have another Lord's Day, uh, we'll continue to, to grapple with these things. Let's pray. Father, uh, one thing is clear uh, from this passage. It's that your Son is powerful and he has all authority even over evil. Lord, there's much evil in our world today, and yet it is under the rule and the reign of our resurrected Lord Jesus. Help us believe that. Help us understand that and see that. And, oh, Lord, if we have not bowed and confessed Jesus as Lord, oh, Lord, have mercy on us. And hasten the time when we do so before he returns and fills up another prison. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.